in front of you. We are going to be in John chapter 16, John chapter 16, verse 16 this morning. Jesus has been having a long conversation with his disciples, and he has been telling them about the future. He's been telling them about what is going to happen, what it means for them to believe and be connected to him, that they'll be like the vine. Uh, they'll be like branches on, on his vine, to be exact, that they are a new planting, his new community, and that as they abide in him, they thrive and they bear fruit. But as that happens, the world will also hate them because it hates him. And so as this vine grows and as it bears fruit and as it spreads out across the world, uh, the world is going to react against it. The world is going to hate it and seek to kill it. And so they're going to need help, and Jesus is going to send a helper whom we know to be the Holy Spirit, someone who is going to walk alongside and bear witness in their hearts. And so, having said all of that, Jesus now kind of returns to the present in verse 16 as he wraps up everything he said before uh, he prays for his disciples. And so... John 16, verse 16, Jesus says, A little while, and you will see me no longer. And again a little while, and you will see me. So some of his disciples said to one another, What is this that he says to us? A little while, and you will not see me. And again a little while, and you will see me. And because I'm going to the Father. And so they were saying, What does he mean by a little while? We don't know what he's talking about. Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him. And so he said to them, Is this what you were asking yourselves? What I meant by saying a little while and you will not see me, and again a little while and you will see me? Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful but your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice And no one will take your joy from you. In that day, you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now, you have asked nothing in my name. Ask, and you will receive, so that your joy may be full. I have said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. In that day you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your, on your behalf, because the Father himself loves you, because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. I came from the Father and have come into the world, and now I am leaving the world and going to the Father." His disciples said, Ah, now you're speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. Now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. Jesus answered them, Do you now believe? 
Behold, the hour is coming, indeed it has come, when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Let's pray. Lord, we need your help. I need your help. We need your help to open this word, not simply to our eyes and not simply to our ears, but also to our hearts. We need your help to apply this word. We need your help to draw confidence from it, to draw comfort from it, that we would be able to hear and know and apply this word to our hearts. God, would you do that good work? We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Perspective matters, right? How you see things or how things are seen matters. It really matters. Think about real estate value. I mean, what is it that really makes one home, let's say, let's say you put one home in this neighborhood, I'm not saying anything particular about this neighborhood in case you live in this neighborhood, okay, in this neighborhood in Clanton versus the same home in Vestavia Hills, Alabama up in Birmingham, right? Nothing changes about the home, but the value goes up dramatically because the perspective about that home changes, right? The homes that are around it, the city that it's in, all of these different factors that influence your perspective when buying a home. Now, I don't make, uh, I don't make any, I don't really understand necessarily how the stock market works, but so much of it is built on perception, how a company is perceived to be doing or not doing. And sometimes that perspective bears a correspondence to reality. And sometimes, right, we, the, the market gets what we call the jitters, where it's worried about something that might happen. And so numbers stay flat or they start taking a dip, right? And again, it's perspective because if that doesn't happen or if things, if things go the opposite direction, all of a sudden the market rebounds, right? So perspective matters. Think about your own life. Um, some of you uh, probably have taken a personality test before or a temperament test. Maybe when you, if you did premarital counseling and it was for the first time, at least for, for me, it was the first time really to take a, a personality test. And right, you, first you kind of struggle through the test and you feel like the test is going to diagnose you as having like multiple personalities because you weren't quite sure how you answered that question. And then you get the results back. And you're, you feel like, you know, this piece of paper has just opened your soul and, like, read all of your mail and just unveiled, you know, the secrets of the universe about you, right? Um, you're like, oh, now I have some perspective on who I really am, right? Um, you take the test again, like, 10, 15 years later, and you're, like, a different person. So, I, you know, those tests have their place. But it, what they're useful for is they give you a sense of perspective and maybe what you might do with that. And that's what Jesus is aiming to do here. He aims to correct uh, and shepherd the disciples' perspective. And as he does that, he's doing that for us as well. Uh, if you had to use words that 
describe the disciples in, well, really in the whole gospel, um, but especially at this particular moment, uh, confused, dumbfounded, bewildered, afraid, right? And Jesus is kind of entering into that and helping them navigate. And so there in, in verse 16, he's talking a little bit cryptically. Sometimes Jesus does that, and he he reminds them again that a little while I'm going to go away. You're not going to see me. And then a little while you'll see me again. And the disciples, it, it's almost kind of humorous. It, and this is one of the reasons, I think I might have said this before, this is one of the reasons you know that you can trust the Bible. Because nobody, remember that John is one of these confused men. Nobody, if, if somebody was trying to write something really flattering and good about themselves, they would not include these details. This is how you know that it is true to life and trustworthy because John makes himself look like an absolute buffoon, right? I mean, if you were going to write a story where you were part of the characters, wouldn't you kind of give yourself a little bit of credit? Like you wouldn't look nearly as idiotic as, as maybe you were in real life, but the disciples, we see them warts and all. And right here, they're, they're, you can imagine that Jesus is, is walking in front of them a little ways, kind of leading them to the garden where they're going. And the disciples, you know, he says this, and Peter and James and John and the others are like, what is, what is he talking about? What does he mean? A little while. You know, they're, they're kind of arguing back and forth. They don't really know what he's talking about. And Jesus knows, of course, that they're confused. He knows. And so he just says outright, guys, is this what you're talking about? Is this what you want me to explain? Uh, and so Jesus, as he corrects their perspective, he takes them through uh, several different phases. And the first phase is this. He tells them that, that sorrow is real but it is only temporary. That they will have sorrow, but it will not last forever. Uh, and so let's look, at, um, let's look at verse 20. As Jesus begins to explain his answer to them, or his, what he was saying to them, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, and the world will rejoice. What's Jesus talking about? He's talking about his death. He's talking about what's going to happen in less than 24 hours. At this time, tomorrow, Jesus will be in the hands of his enemies. Um, in fact, by this time, Jesus should be dead, right? And so what it will look like is Jesus' enemies have won. What Jesus has been doing this whole time is he's been, he's been really pointing out this deep divide between two groups of people. On the one hand, you have the world. And it's hostility to Jesus. It's rebellion against Jesus. And on the other side of that divide is Jesus' disciples. And what Jesus has really been saying the whole time is these people, the, the world, look like they're in charge. And they look like they're winning. And they look like everything's going their way. And if you're following me, you're going to look like the loser. You're going to look like things are not going your way. You're, you got the raw end of the deal. And so Jesus says... You will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. This time, tomorrow night, my enemies will be jumping up and down with glee. You will be crying. In fact, he tells them later, you will have run away. You will have abandoned me. I will be left alone, at least humanly speaking. You will be afraid. You will be scattered. The shepherd is going to be struck, and the sheep are going to run away. And so, for the disciples, the sorrow will be 
real. Jesus isn't supposed to die. He's not supposed to go in the ground. He's supposed to win. Justice is supposed to prevail. He's supposed to be the king. And Jesus says the wrong people will be laughing and the right people will be crying. How can that be fair? How can that be good? And while Jesus is talking primarily of his death, that parallels our own feelings, does it not? That, that oftentimes when we look at the world, uh, it seems like all of the right people are rejoicing. Excuse me, all of the wrong people are rejoicing and all of the right people are crying. That ju- justice is not prevailing. In fact, it, it all looks upside down. That the wrong is winning the day. And so, we need to hear that sorrow is real, but temporary. And the reason we need to hear that, the reason the disciples needed to hear that, was because their false hopes needed to be dashed. Right? They really had wrong ideas about Jesus. They really thought that he was going to do certain things that he wasn't going to do. They thought he was going to take the throne. They thought he was going to be the king who would conquer the Romans and it was going to be great and they were going to get special thrones just for them. Right? In fact, they asked for that. Earlier on, the disciples said, can we sit at your right hand? And Jesus says, no, no, you can't do that. Um, So their hopes have to be dashed. Their false expectations have to be destroyed. That's what sorrow does. That's, that's, really, that's really why we weep, isn't it? Because we, what we thought was going to happen, what we expected to happen, what we wanted to happen, didn't happen. And so we're frustrated and upset. And so Jesus is telling the disciples, that's going to happen to you. You will weep and lament, and the world will rejoice. But that's temporary. Look again at verse... 20, you will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn in to joy. Right? Jesus promises a better day. The reason hope has to, false hopes have to be dashed is so that real hopes can be built on something solid and lasting and true. And so Jesus says, not just that Joy will come after sorrow, but actually that your sorrow, the very reason that you're weeping, will be transformed and turned into joy. The very thing that you are crying about will turn into joy. Jesus said that's a lot like a woman in labor. Right? A woman who's in anguish and labor. I've, I've never met an expectant mother who said... Yeah, you know, the whole baby part, that'll be fine. You know, I guess kind of looking forward to that. But what I'm really looking forward to is the labor, right? I want to be in pain. That's, you know, those, those few hours, however long they may seem, that's what I'm really looking forward to. The newborn afterwards, eh, take it or leave it, right? But I want the pain. Nobody says that. That's not, that isn't real. That doesn't happen. Jesus says, in the same way, right, you're... Sorrow, your anguish, your labor will turn into joy because of the fruit of that labor. They're both real. The pain is real. The anguish is real. Jesus says it's going to last a little while. 
And that little while may seem like a long, long time. But it will come to an end. And on the other side of that anguish, there is joy. Uh, There is happiness. And not only this, but see, verse 21, When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. Jesus says the joy to come after the morning, the joy that comes through the morning, will be better than the morning. No one will take it from you. No one can take it from you. How? How is that possible? What is it? What is it that brings us this joy? Jesus says, because you will see me again. Jesus is our joy. Jesus is now talking about his resurrection. He says, yeah, I'm a little while and you won't see me, right? I'll be dead, I'll be in the ground, but then a little while again and you will see me, right? As, as Jesus emerges from the tomb, as he meets his disciples who are still fearful and afraid, they're Sorrow over having lost him now turns into joy because they realize what he's accomplished. What do we do with that? Our joy is the same. We weren't there on Resurrection Sunday. We weren't there on Easter. But our joy is the same. Jesus is still risen. And we can, we can empathize with the disciples because it is much easier to walk by sight than it is to walk by faith. Our current existence is one of little temporary joys, right? Always, uh, always fleeting. We kind of run from one to the next, always looking for that little happiness fix and yet always being disappointed that it never quite, it never quite musters up. Jesus says, one day you will see me again and then your joy cannot be taken away. You will have a deep and lasting joy that can never be taken away. And then something else happens. Jesus says, not only will joy give way, not only will sorrow give way to joy, but confusion will give way to knowing. That's what he's talking about when he's talking about all this prayer stuff. Look in verse 23. In that day, you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. So wait, Jesus, is it, am I asking or am I not asking? I'm really confused. And it would be helpful to know that in verse 23, there's two different words, two different Greek words for asking, right? The first time when Jesus says, in that day you will ask nothing of me, um, it may be better to say, you won't question me, right? There's two kinds of asking in view here. One is the, one is the questioning of confusion and doubt. That's what they're doing right now. Like, Jesus, what are you talking about? I don't understand. Jesus says, on that day, when you see me again, you won't have to question me. You'll know. You'll understand. You'll have the answers. You'll understand what I've come to do. You'll understand why I had to die, why I'm rising again, why I'm going back to the Father. All of that will be made clear, so you won't have to question me. And on that day, then this is the second kind of asking, no longer will you question me in confusion, but now you'll ask things in confidence. 
right? And you, you won't be confused and doubtful anymore. Now you'll be able to truly pray. You'll be able to ask the Father things in confidence because you'll ask in my name. Until now you have asked nothing in my name. Verse 24. Ask and you will receive so that your joy may be full. I've said these things to you in figures of speech, but the hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. Jesus says on that day, when the disciples see him again, everything will become clear. Confusion will turn in to knowledge. And so we can ask. We can ask in full confidence and prayer before the Father. But then we come to this last section, and I think this is probably the most poignant His disciples there in verse 29 say, Ah, now we get it. Now you're speaking plainly. Now now we're not confused. Now we believe. And Jesus is like, really? Now you think you get it? Right? Um, this This would be a case of saying all the right things for all the wrong reasons. Okay? The disciples are making a good confession. They just don't know how shallow it is. Right? They're saying... Now we understand you. Now we know that you've come from God. We believe your word. We're good to go. And Jesus says, you think so? Let me tell you what's going to happen in a few hours. In just a few hours, I'm going to be arrested, and I'm going to be hauled in front of trial. And you know where you're going to be? Running for your lives. Running scared. You're going to be running away, and you're going to leave me alone. So... Cool the brakes on that bravado for the moment and understand that this isn't really about you, uh, but it's about what I have to do, what I have to accomplish. Jesus says, do you now believe? Behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and will leave me alone. And that's exactly what it will look like. That is the perspective, right, that Jesus is all alone that his disciples have run away, and that the world is victorious. That is the perspective, at least from one angle. But from Jesus' perspective, it's exactly what had to happen. Jesus says, Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. I have said these things to you so that in me you may have peace. We've talked about that word peace before, right? The, the Hebrew word shalom. Not just the end of hostility, but welfare. Um, the end of hostility between people, the end of hostility between God and man. A good sense that everything is right with the world. That's what peace is. Jesus says, despite all of that, in me you will have peace. In the world, you will have tribulation, you will have trouble, you will have anxiety, you will be persecuted, it will be bad. And then Jesus finishes by saying this, but take heart. Have courage. How in the world can I have courage, Jesus? You just told me what I'm, you just told me that my my confession is hollow and that I'm going to run away. How in the world can I have courage from that perspective? And Jesus says, because I have overcome, I have conquered, I have put under my foot, I have overcome the world. And so what Jesus is saying is the world is too much for you. There are enemies too big 
too strong, too powerful for you. You cannot handle the world. And if that was the only perspective there was, then you should be afraid. You should be very afraid. You should hide. But that is not the truth. The true perspective is that I have overcome the world. I have conquered the world. Which begs the question, how does Jesus overcome? How does Jesus conquer? And we kind of spilled the beans when I talked about Revelation 4 and 5. He conquers by dying. He conquers by shedding his own blood. And so what looks like losing actually becomes winning. You see, there there are people in the world who are naive enough to believe that peace does not come at a cost. And I don't say that meanly. I just mean to say that it's naive, that that in this world there is no way to have peace without a price. In fact, there's really no way to have peace Without, dare we say, bloodshed. Augustine, I believe, was said that the end, the purpose of war is peace. That the reason we wage war is to make peace. That maybe seems counterintuitive to a very utopian view of the world, but that's true. That in this world, in this fallen world, the only way to achieve peace is someone must die. Right? Uh, let's just set up a scenario. A very bad person has lots of power and lots of wealth, and they use that power and that wealth to subdue and hurt other people. How does that person stop? By reason? You just go and have a conversation with them and say, hey, listen, it's really not nice what you're doing here. You should probably stop doing that. Does that work? No, usually the only way that person is stopped is when a greater force comes and stops them. And in the same way, Jesus says, in me, you will have peace because I have conquered the world. You say, what Jesus does on the cross is he actually conquers Satan. By his own death, he puts to death his enemy. And he binds the strong man and he plunders his house. And he takes it back and he says, this is mine. That's how Jesus wins That's how Jesus conquers. That's how Jesus overcomes the world. And what that allows us to do is not try to conquer the world ourselves, but to actually trust in the one who's already conquered us. And to not be afraid. And to not be fearful. And to not worry. But to actually walk forward and live in Him. George Matheson lived in the 1800s, the late 1800s. He was a Scotsman, and he was, he was a brilliant guy. Uh, his future lay in the university, studying in libraries and in university academies somewhere, except that George Matheson, from a very young age, had trouble with his eyes. And at a very young age, he began going blind. And so this bright promise of a future studying, reading for the benefit of other people grew dim. And in fact, when he told his fiancée that he was going blind, she left him. She, she could not bear 
And you can understand, maybe this is the late 1800s, there's not a lot of social support network for people with uh, such a disability. She knew that her life was going to be spent uh, taking care of this man, and that was not a future she wanted, and so she left him. And so uh, Matheson then was left with his, with his sisters. They took care of him. His family took care of him. Uh, one sister in particular was kind of his caretaker. She convinced him instead of pursuing the academy that he ought to pursue the pastorate. And so he did, and he preached uh, to thousands of people blind. But then a day came, uh, 20 years after his own fiancée left him, uh, for his sister to get married. And it was time for her to go away. And so uh, the night before her wedding, George Matheson, uh, his, his family had left to go celebrate and make preparations for the wedding the next day, and, and George was all alone. Uh, and he says that something of an incredible sadness passed between him and the Lord. And then he wrote uh, the hymn that we opened our worship service with, O Love That Will Not Let Me Go. He wrote it in about five minutes. And he said it's the only hymn he wrote that he never had to edit. O love that will not let me go, I rest my weary soul in thee. I give thee back the life I owe, that in thine ocean depths its flow may richer, fuller be. The third verse is probably the most telling. He says, O joy that seekest me through pain. O joy that seekest me through pain. I cannot close my heart to thee. I trace the rainbow through the rain. What a beautiful picture. What a beautiful picture that God gave Noah that in, that in the face of those stark, dark, overwhelming, brooding storm clouds that, that threaten to end it all, this rainbow comes through the sky, this beautiful symbol of God's promise that says, I will not do that again. Right? I trace the rainbow through the rain. And feel the promise is not vain, that morn shall tearless be. George Matheson had such a perspective. He was not lost in his own confusion. He was not lost in seeking temporary joys, even though he had lost his eyesight and was blind as a bat. He could truly see what really, really mattered. Can you see? Let's pray. Lord in heaven, we thank you for true sight and beautiful promises that even though all looks dark, that even though the storm rages, even though the world rejoices, we hear Jesus saying, have courage, be bold, take heart, because I have overcome the world. I am the rainbow traced through the rain. O oh Lord, that we would have that perspective. That our eyes would be lifted up from our small, piddling concerns 
Maybe they don't seem so small or so piddling. Maybe like labor, they're hard and they're long. And we don't see the end. Would you remind us, Lord Jesus, that at the cross you have overcome the world. And in the empty tomb you overcome the world. And so we can say, we can sing which, with George Matheson. O cross that liftest up my head, I dare not ask to fly from thee. I lay in dust, life's glory dead, and from the ground their blossoms red, life that shall endless be. Oh, that we would, oh, that we would see eternity, and that eternity would color everything else that we see, so that we would not be afraid, but that we would have courage. Because our Jesus, our King, has overcome the world. We pray it in his name. Amen. Let me ask the elders to come forward and get the table ready.